You're listening to the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. I'm Michelle Donkin. For the first time in a couple of weeks, we've got Andrew with us. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Uh, how have you been? I, I've been great. Yeah, I've been I've been editing. How have you been? I've not been editing. No. I've been elsewhere. You've been interviewing. Yes. Yes, yes. So, uh, this episode, we chatted to Tim McQuillan-Wright, who is a theatre designer. Theatre designer, also a director occasionally. Mm. Uh, he directed me in my first play at the New Venture Theatre. Wow. It was a production of Art, in which I played Evan. Uh, and Evan is, um, put simply, a somewhat a nervous, uh, almost neurotic uh, person <laughs> who uh, worries slightly too much about what people may think of him and just wants everybody to get on and really gets quite anxious and nausea-ridden about the prospect of arguments. So how did you prepare for that role? 46 years <laughs> of prep for that role. Yeah. So you've known him for a while yeah, then, yeah. not 46 years. No. Uh, this is such a lovely chat that you and him have. You're, you're talking about kind of what it is to be a, a theatre designer, but also how he got into designing as well. So he, he was kind of an assistant for a while and then, and then was given various opportunities of you know i need i need this design and i need it by monday and he went yes i'll do it yes. and it's just so great to just it's quite improv based in that way i don't know it reminded me of improv yeah it's really interesting in obviously being in the right place at the right time knowing the right people that, that that's that's alchemy that that's uh really vital but the idea of um taking the plunge mm. and going, yeah, I'll do that. Raising uh, your hand. Yeah, raising your hand. And knowing that, letting people know that you're waving at them. That's, I think that's one of the most valuable take-homes of this chat. Mm. Yeah. So we're on the home straight now as well. For, we're past for the, the midway point. We have, yeah. We, this, we've got a couple more episodes to go after this podcast yes. for season three. And then we're, we're up and running with our Cast Iron Shorts. We have, as you say, uh, Cast Iron Shorts, uh, which is original audio drama neatly packaged in a podcast pod. <laughs> I mean, you got there a lot quicker than me. I think it's like a box. It's, a, it's packaged. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. may have got there a quicker. It doesn't, doesn't mean I ended up in the right place. <laughs> Shall we have a listen to you and Tim having a chat? On the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Oh, Tim McQuillan, right. Hello. Um, hello. Uh, this sounds more metaphysical a question, or philosophical question, than oh, it's intended. Right. But who are you <laughs> and, and what do you do? Amazing. Uh, well, uh, my name's Tim McQuillan, right? I am a set designer, uh, principally of theatre. Um, I studied to do uh, theatre and museum just because I thought it'd be slightly more interesting, um, but very quickly just moved into theatre. And now I do uh, quite a lot of the very broadly termed immersive theatre. So I do um, straight plays and musicals, um, but I do a lot of immersive or, um, if you want to say, participatory theatre yeah. uh, now as well, experiential things, uh, which is quite a new uh, sort of new industry, if you like. And that's going to be part of the brief and part of your understanding, I guess, in that the audience are not 
passive. They're, 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 they're part of that experience. Yes. going to dictate the terms of what your designs look like. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate about what exactly makes immersive theatre, and you can certainly argue that it's been as a genre, it's been going around for centuries. And I look back at some of the things that I've done in my career, and I think that actually, with a, a sort of collaboration with certain directors, we've found ourselves making immersive theatre very sort of quite specifically immersive theatre out of what otherwise we just thought was. A twist on in the round or promenade or promenade yeah absolutely i mean the, the divide between promenade and immersive is is obviously quite sort of hazy yeah um so i guess ultimately that core value of how do you communicate to an audience through uh storytelling and specifically where i'm concerned through visuals and some strange sort of um cultural symbolism um those things are the same whether it's uh, a sort of fixed point of view yeah. theater or whether you're moving around and or even sort of playing one of the roles um by your your being there um of course with promenade theater you're very much a voyeur and the characters don't really engage with your presence yeah whereas immersive theater they absolutely do or can um let's say i'm using this term immersive theater like anyone has really sort of figured out exactly what that means and where the boundaries are well we're still in the early days the gold rush days of what that is i guess i think so yeah um, and and there's a lot of things that are called immersive and you you could sort of you could investigate and think well that's that's not immersive at all if you sort of look at the literally what the word means yeah um but it's just it's just a big old um, expanse essentially, I think, to mean not fixed view theatre. Yeah, and although, and that, that's interesting, the fixed view, because presumably, uh, in many cases, the routes that an audience can take, uh, the company and the production are going to have some quite stringent control over what that audience will do, but for the audience, it will feel like they are doing a choose your own adventure and they will be influencing the plot in some way even if their yes. choices are actually quite limited yes indeed um and it's to be honest the with each with each show that i do they uh they do vary so much and you find that a lot of them are as you say very strictly controlled and it's about fooling the audience into thinking that they have multiple choices throughout this but actually um they are being guided through it um, and the trick then is to hopefully make each member of a of a party, if you go as a group of four, yeah. or you know go as a, a bigger thing, if it's a stag do or something, um, that each member of that party has a different experience. That's great. Whereas obviously in in more traditional theatre, if you'll excuse that term, um, you're effectively you are getting hopefully exactly the same experience, even though thought processes within that time are obviously going to change. Yeah. You were speaking about uh, the cultural sort of symbolism of the time, which reminded me of a question that I was going to throw at you a bit later on, but <laughs> I'll, I'll put it into now. In the sense of, if we look at like a traditional script, um, like a, a Pinter or something, um, although I'm sure how a Pinter would thump me if I called <laughs> this script traditional. Yeah. Um, quite hard. Um, <laughs> but 
there's presumably going to be a way that you would design a certain script for a traditional play in 2019 that would not be the way that you would design it for 1989. Uh, not that the production itself is set in those eras, but from you are living in that era that the world's changed and you might be more interested in stark lighting at that point. Um, how much does the script have control over that? A- outside of the conversation where the director has control, whatever, yes. if it's just you and the script, what's the relationship? I think it's a really interesting question because it's not about sort of changing styles or fashions. I think you're right. Whatever context we um, experience a play from, obviously the things that, that are, as you say, important to us now are different to how they were 30 years ago. And so maybe some sort of visual symbols. And when I say that, I don't just mean within the scenery. I just mean in terms of how the thing moves uh, at all. Um, as a as a as a production, it can some some ideas that would have felt very um, uh, sort of raw and new then obviously going to feel quite cliched potentially now. Um, if you want to do a production within a certain time frame, you want to, for instance, um, I'm going to move away from the Pinter. Uh, example, because I'm I'm going to get into dodgy ground, and I don't feel I'm enough qualified to uh, uh, to speak too much about that. But are you going to talk about olives or, or stockings and high heels? I was going to, yeah, I was going to go with uh, I was going to go with your standard old Shakespeare uh, ah, reference. Yeah. Um, so often they are obviously moved into um, contemporary yeah. settings, um, or even just slightly moved out of their original uh, setting that they were. Uh, that they were written for um, and so obviously on, on the, the top surface you have a set of visual references which if it was 30 years ago would you be trying to make references to the IRA which obviously aren't going to be so relevant to an audience now um, but even once you've gone past that layer I would say that if trying to think of a good example here which uh, uh, off the hoof feels sort of impossible. I did see a rather pithy comment recently of somebody not entirely honestly asking the question has anyone seen a production of Macbeth that wasn't in khaki pants? <laughs> uh, which is a it's not an inaccurate statement um, yeah. to use that I guess um, Henry V is a, is a good example in, the, in terms yeah. of two films one is happy and glorious and celebratory because it's the uh, mid-Second World War from Lawrence Olivier and it's, right. you know, powerful. And mm. Branagh's version um, is much more drenched and despair-like because it's a reaction to the wars that are going on at that yes. time and our opinion of our own country at that in, in war involvement. And I think that's exactly the point. We can put on a production now which references, for instance, the Second World War. Um... Uh, even though that obviously would have been dated if you're doing a production that referenced the Second World War in the 1980s, that still would have been a dated reference. It's hardly um, uh, up to date. However, as an audience, we would have read those um, those symbols differently to how we do now. And, and now it's going to read much more as a um, maybe, you know, a, a museum piece. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I think w- with whatever you're tackling, and we're just sort of landing on this thing of, of era, but I think whatever you're tackling, um, you are trying to manipulate the audience into having way more independent thought than we can give them through just the words that are written down. And whatever that independent thought manifests itself as, um, a lot of that is going to be down to some, maybe not subliminal, I think that really is sort of a glib thing to um, uh, to say, but maybe um, certainly there can be some manipulations um, of, of how the audience is to respond. And obviously the, the language of those man- manipulations is an ever-changing thing. And it's obviously going to be different with whatever culture. Yeah. Um, so, yes, productions that transfer from America to here or, you know, even further away. Whilst I can't think of any other country that's further away culturally than us right now, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, just in terms of our visual references, um, obviously we all have very specific um, uh, sort of maps of references in our heads and just trying to get a sense of, yeah, how to tap into that and manipulate it. And that, yeah, and that can work for you as well, the manipulation can work for you. I'm thinking particularly of something like Shakespeare where the audience essentially uh, buys a ticket knowing or perceiving that they know what they're getting when they go in and also that's the shared DNA with stage productions of film properties Mm. where you can sort of, I'm guessing, exploit that assumed familiarity with the source text and yeah. then even make that work for you, so you get you no, know, you will get the moment that yeah. you like in the um, film version, but obviously in a different way. Or it perhaps well, not, not obviously. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to understand that the audience is going to be very unhappy if they don't get the things that they've assumed are going to happen when they bought the ticket. And if you're going to replace those big moments, um, I did a production of Wizard of Oz um, uh, quite a few years ago that was over here yeah. and did very well over here. And we deliberately did the musical, which we wanted to do. It was a good collaboration. Myself, the director, the lighting designer and choreographer, we all sort of were, were thinking in the same way. And there were, there were a lot of references to the film uh, because we set it in 1930, whatever it was, when yeah. the film was made, which of course long after it was written. Mm. Um, but we set it in uh, California at that time, so it was sort of all became about the gold rush yeah. and the expanding industry of um, film, uh, which up until that point, Hollywood didn't really exist in the same way. And so there's a lot of those references and it was kind of cute and it gave us the opportunity to give a very different visual style. And people over here went with that because they knew that if they wanted to see the film, they could go home and they could watch the film. Then it was bought by Americans and they showed snippets of our uh, filmed version uh, to a focus group over there. And having bought our show, instantly asked that everything was different because it wasn't enough like the film. Yeah. Which uh, is still a painful memory, I'll be honest with you. Um, But it just is interesting how sometimes you can't, you can't defeat that. You have to give those moments. And I think understanding why an audience member has bought the ticket in the first place. Yeah. you can't ignore. But there's also a sense of when, I think brushstrokes is the wrong 
term and also cover air version is the wrong version but there are moments when there's some iconography about the film version that you I'm getting the impression you can go here's a representation of this and, and cover version is too clumsy a uh, phrasing but looking at the images because uh, I do research looking <laughs> at the images of Ghost uh, oh, yeah. where the images that I've seen are seem to be like the quite stark sort of mm-hmm. cold images mm. which does happen within the film of Ghost mm. Mm. but that's more I guess what I'm getting at is there seems to be some of your designs that are more about not an accurate representation but a, a fair representation of your feeling your emotional yes. response to the film so it doesn't, doesn't look like the film but it's how you felt watching the film that's really nice to hear because that's do, that is exactly what I think yeah. and we have this odd thing um, within us as audience members um, and I found this so much with the secret cinema work that I've been doing recently where we put on a an immersive theatricalised version of a well-known film and often these films are quite uh, they're quite old so people haven't seen them for quite a while um, but it means that their memories of them are massively skewed. And if you were to ask, so you maybe you'd put some visuals in front of people to say, you know, was this the bar that Decker sits in, yeah. or whatever? Um, and you could, you know, just a load of photoshopped images, and they wouldn't be able to tell you which one that he was yeah. in. Um, but they would absolutely be able to tell you. Um, if something just felt right. Yeah. Um, and that's particularly helpful with theatre when we don't have the budget to literally put on stage yeah. what they could do um, on film. But it's also just, it's just, a, as you say, it's a really important thing to do to re-stir, um, whether it's that feeling of nostalgia, which is so um, powerful, or just whatever sentiment, something that's an emotion that, that just really... Um, gets your heart pumping. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's a really important thing to do. Ghost was a fun one, I have to say, because we found uh, we didn't quite know how to do the production. Um, we hadn't sort of found that hook, if you like, and we found through our research, the director and myself, that the flat that I can't remember the characters' names now. Sam, isn't it? And somebody. Demi Moore. Exactly. Um, Ditto. That's, yeah. Uh, that Demi and Patrick um, had an apartment in New York um, and they filmed it in, a, in an actual apartment, but it was a converted cloth factory. And so we toyed with the idea that they literally were coming into this abandoned cloth factory, but because of uh, all the history of that building it was kind of inhabited by ghosts who were on their side, you know, who just... Yeah. The, um, and it meant that we could fill... Uh, we never sort of um, referenced the ghosts, but it just meant that at the beginning of the show, when the apartment was sort of coming to life yeah. out of the, the rags and the dust and whatever, um, that there was a reason for people to be on stage. Yeah. And then they could you know, sweep off the dust cloths and, and things. Um, and suddenly, yeah, these things start to fall into place. But it was absolutely about why do people love this film? Yeah. That's, you know, even though this is a musical, it's a different script. Yeah. It's important to 
yeah, to figure out why and then try to translate that into a different set of visuals. Yeah, yeah. Talking about films that, you know, are, you know, are fondly remembered by some but may not have been watched in years and whatever, and we are in this era. Um, we, I don't know, we've been out of the era, but we're particularly in an era now where films are becoming stage productions. Yes. Um, is there a film on your DVD or shelf or whatever that you go... Oh, do you know what? Uh, even if it's a particularly it would be insanity and a really bad idea to try and stage it, you go, oh, do you know what? I I quite like to design that or see that on stage. Yeah, it's difficult to think of a of a film being a bad idea to put on, given the amount of uh, films that have been <laughs> badly put on. But um, I was really disappointed when Amelie became a musical, and I wasn't phoned. <sighs> Yeah. Um, I understand though that it's the American musical, so it's not set in France. Yeah. So it makes me feel slightly better about things. Uh, but um, the designer, who I don't know, has done a lovely job, so it makes it even more painful. Oh. Um, that would have been lovely. Um, maybe if they do a play of it, or I did try to um, push it towards an immersive production because I yeah. thought that would have been gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I know that some like it hot has been a musical, but. Not with any of the charm of the film. No. I'd love to do, uh, yeah, love to do that in a way that stirs the same kind of uh, black and white, uh, glorious nostalgia. I should um, direct your attention to the book that's directly behind you. Mm. Did you see that earlier? Well, I did. I <laughs> see. I've got a. I, I've got <laughs> the poster of uh, of this in my studio. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I saw this as we came in and just thought, yeah, there we go. This is. This is why we get on. <laughs> this is a, this is a, oh my goodness, it is the whole script. This is a book, yes, I did the entire script, lots of um, copies of the actual shooting scripts. Right. Lots of uh, dialogue, lots of photos. Um, it's a Tashin, if that's the correct pronunciation. A copy of the book, so it's quite a big fat book. We bought it on our honeymoon. Nice. Um, <laughs> nice. Well, oh, the very first. Just such a great film. The f- first indication I had of Some Like It Hot is through a throwaway reference um, where Billy Wild and uh, not Billy Wilder, uh, Billy Crystal is impersonating Jack Lemon, impersonating Tony Curtis in <laughs> When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's incidentally uh, is another film uh, that you've designed for stage. Uh, I did. I'm liking my segues tonight. Yes, you're doing very well. Um, but I've I've uh, I've thought of a better answer. Oh yeah, go on. And it's, uh, it's the uh, Tony Curtis um, connection that's reminded me that a film that I love, and I think people at the time oh. loved it, but it, I don't think it's aged terribly well, or maybe people have just forgotten. I'd love to find a way of doing The Great Race. Oh, interesting. Because uh, it would be bonkers. It's just such a wonderful film. You've got Jack Lemmon camping it up like he's the, the, he plays the character that then Dick Dastardly was based on. Yeah. And you've got Tony Curtis playing the Peter Perfect or whoever it is. Um, and you've got that amazing pie fight at the end. Uh, and it's just set in the glorious era and has no right to be on stage whatsoever, which is why it'd be huge fun. I've been waiting for the, the film version of Wacky Races. Although yeah. I admit it's probably been done with... Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> oh, right. Um, so we can say it's probably been done in Edinburgh. Well, this is probably true, yes. I saw a um, a pantomime version of Back to the Future 
in Edinburgh, this is before, because obviously we've got, upcoming we've got a yeah, situation yeah, yeah. of Back to the Future. Um, yeah, um, this is a slightly similar question, but different. Um, obviously there are certain iconic sort of stage productions or stage versions that have been around for a while, like the original version of West Side Story or whatever. Is there a production that from the 50s, from the 20s or 30s, that you would have wanted to be in on? Oh. Oh golly. Um I think most of the time when there's there's an exciting new new uh, new work comes about you always sort of want to be in on it yeah. anyway. Um I think to be honest now uh, I much like most of my peers I would imagine um do feel genuinely gutted when any work is done without us. Um, yeah. I think it's uh, the horrible thing of being a freelance. Um, there, are, yeah, there aren't many titles that that come up, and you go, "Oh, I'm glad someone else is designing that." Yeah. Um, Spamalot was a big one actually. When that happened on Broadway, I think there was just a huge amount of people, whether um, directors, performers, designers, whatever, all just thought, "Damn, that's a great idea." Yeah. Love to do that. Um, and plus, the vi- the visual language is already there with Terry Gilliam and sort of yes, there's is is a, like a standing on the shoulder of giants sort of vibe going. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Very much. Yeah. Oh, this is making it sound like I like copying other people's work here, and I guess there is a certain element of trying to trying to do justice, certainly mm. to um, previous sort of visuals. Um, but as we said, it also has to exist in its own right. Otherwise, we could just hire the DVD. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I think it's, um, as theatre designers, perhaps more so than uh, other forms of, of design, we are having to reference so many different uh, styles, yeah. other designers, um, it's not like being um, a 3D artist in the normal sense yeah. where you absolutely need to be um, creating your own style every time. I mean, quite often, um, whilst you obviously can tell the style of designers um, quite often, yeah. but you're still needing to be totally sympathetic to the script and the director. And so you're sort of starting from scratch every time and quite often this comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the the um sort of uh symbols and, and the references that we draw on it's really important and necessary to uh, every time you research for um a new era or a new sort of um uh sort of cultural sect or whatever that we use those those um, those references yeah. that people have. So whether it's um, sort of architectural styles, and it, it can borderline into sort of copying. You're certainly you're copying ornament a lot of the time because there's a there's a shorthand to tell somebody that this is 18th century and this is the wealthy side of things. Yeah. You you can't reinvent history. You can't reinvent how people. Um, will you know will read this scene to a certain extent um so yeah you're so often drawing on 
so many different um, designers uh, of the past. Yeah. Um, so actually just drawing on um, uh, film uh, visuals is just a sort of small extension of that, really. I'm not a, a designer, but I am fascinated by those two extremes of depicting or visualising something that is clearly r- ridiculous to be realised on stage. <laughs> that I... I would have been fascinated, I guess, to have been around in the 80s era when it would be like an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical and going, OK, we're doing a helicopter, we're going to do a waterfall, that whole idea of going, let's do a stupid thing yeah, and see yeah, if it yeah. works. Yeah. But by the same token, I'm, I'm equally fascinated by going, let's get a, a space like the National, mm. have very muted colours and a single chair in upper stage left, and that's, that's going to be it for 30 minutes. Yeah. That's equally fascinating to me, which yeah. means I'm largely a very difficult director to work for. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're directing your own work and then you're designing your play, are, are you a good director to work for or vice versa? <laughs> um, you mean as a designer? Or yeah, so when you, well, no, both say, when you are designing your own work as a director, is, mm. is that useful or is that sort of... Um, do your ideas run away with you before uh, directing? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm probably not the best person to ask that because I don't think my ideas run away with me. Uh, I think that I've been told that a lot myself. This is well, yeah, no, uh, no they can't possibly. It's yeah. fine. I, I, so much prefer um, directing my own designs um, as, as, as you know, designing my own uh, the things that I direct. Uh, it'd be unthinkable to get somebody else to design I mean often when you are designing um, to a certain extent actually um, I would imagine it's if you're an actor in um, you know very small cast piece you know maybe you've got a you know one two three person everybody you know whether it's the director uh, designer or the guys on stage you are bringing quite an element to that which is a lot of the thought processes are what you have as a director. So you know, you are, to a certain extent, you are directing a lot of it. And obviously, the director takes the ultimate responsibility. So can just say no, Andrew, too far. But yeah, I don't know why you went for that. <laughs> name out of the hat there. Yeah, yeah. But um, but ultimately, that's that is what we're all doing. And I think as a designer, you are at least as part of your working process you are directing it yourself. Yeah. And obviously then things change and you realise, ah, oh, no, that's not how this other person sees it, so you need to readdress. But as you're going through those thought processes and figuring out actually how would that staging work, what's the most dynamic way of staging this, therefore don't flip and have any scenery that sits there because it's going to ruin this, yeah. this whatever. So, yes, when I'm directing then the designing is just, it just seems totally, totally natural. It's not like taking on two jobs. Yeah. It's it's just being able to do one job and not spend time arguing or trying to figure out what a note is that comes through. Yeah. You know. I certainly, yeah, and it's that sort of thing where everything is part of telling the same job, telling the same story. Mm. I saw a production once of a play um, where there was an opening scene where a conversation was happening, having a conversation was being had at a desk, which was a a wrought iron heavy desk, 
which was the front of the stage. And then the scene finished. And the cast iron, raw iron <laughs> desk remained there for the entire duration of the first act at the front of the stage and was never referred to again. Oh. And I, I began to clench. Yes. I clenched further when we got into Act 2 and it had not been moved. Wow. And it was still there. And I guess what I'm sort of like dancing around is that if you are doing both jobs at the same director designer, you, you know that that thing serves a purpose or that doesn't serve a purpose and yeah. you're able to have that conversation with yourself. Yeah, certainly it's it's very easy to to mess up a director's plans by digging heels in because you've got uh, an image that you're desperate to fight for. Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm not that sort of designer who how tends to that win those arguments. Well, that's an interesting thing, because like, uh, you don't tend to win the arguments. But how often might that happen where presumably you're both going for the same goal you, you know mm. the story but you have different ideas about the journey there I think to be honest that's I would say that's pretty much every time there's always some form there's some period of time where you are sort of uh, snaking around this central path and trying to find your, yourselves both in the same place um, most of what most of what you say to each other is uh, totally logical, and you say, "Yeah, absolutely, that um, this is all great." And then that there will be just something that just throws it, and you just go, "How, how on earth, how on earth can that be a logical thing to say? Yeah. It makes no sense to me." Um, and so you you fight because your instinct yeah. tells you to. Um, but ultimately, the job of the designer is to go away and solve those unsolvable visual yeah. things. I mean, if if the director knew how to do those two opposite things at the same time, then you wouldn't be needed. Yeah. So you'd have to, at a certain point, stop fighting and go, okay, let me solve this. And there might be some knock-on, but the knock-on might be more interesting. We'll see what happens. And then if you can't solve it, then you just have to sort of go back and say, how, how wedded are you to this? Yeah. Um, it's a matter of trust, I guess. It is yes, absolutely. Um, you do, you do need to. You need to think that the director is good, um, or at least in in some way grown up. Yeah. Um, grown up enough to want to pursue the best thing for the um, production, not just um, a sort of particularly look at me. I'm the director. Yeah. Have had a great idea, sort of production. Um, and equally, the director needs to think that you're good at what you do. Yeah. Um, it doesn't always happen. I guess um, there has to be a sort of humility there in terms of going, I would like to, this ridiculous idea to happen on stage and I don't want to compromise. What can I have? So there's that sort of caveat of going, I don't want to compromise that. That's the thing that I actually want. Yes. And, and, I, and I will be very unhappy if I don't get it. But... But that's a grown-up way of, of dealing with it. Yeah. Most of the time, uh, when you come when you come up against uh, a director, I, I'm, I'm not going to mention any examples here. This is, I'm not going to be led down this path. No, but there, there's no path. There's no, no path. Okay, if you say so. Um, but if I can think back to working with such a director, um, there is 
there are people around. I, th- I think it does come down to trust. And I think there's clearly that when something just breaks down between you, then this happens. Because um, um, you can have you can have directors who try to push the boundaries way past um, what is possible. I mean, and I mean in terms of um, what you can deliver, um, you know, because of the laws of science. Yeah. Um, Budgetary-wise, yeah. you know, you fight back and fight back and say, this is impossible, this is impossible. And they'll just come back and say, nope, nothing's impossible. You have to solve it. You have to solve it. But there isn't any money. Well, you have to solve it. Um, and you... it. It gets particularly irritating when the line comes back. Um, well, you just have to be more creative. And you go, it really, really isn't about being creative at this point. You know, we're in a tiny, tiny theatre and you're asking for gigantic things. And we have no money. And any sort of theatrical idea that I'm coming to you with is not right. Because people need to believe that when they see an elephant, that it is an elephant. Yes. That, you know, is slightly sweaty. And, and you go... Right, but this is um, it's a little studio theatre and we've got to, you know, do a fringe get-out in ten minutes. So let me just probably say we're not going to get an elephant. What's stronger? What, what, what law of physics is stronger? Budget or science? <laughs> it's, it's easier to make the argument for science. It, de- it depresses me that I have to make the <laughs> argument. You know, there is, there's a lot of... Um, and I, I do get it. I mean, you know, I, yeah. hear my, I hear myself and I do get it because you need people around. You need the directors to, to push and push until eventually they just go, we've exhausted everything we can. Now I'm prepared to say that we can't have a levitating Dame Vera Lynn yeah. or whatever. Um, and you go, great, thanks. We've just wasted, you know, a fortnight proving to you that we can't have that. How nice of you to say, yeah. great, I've had another idea, let's not do that. Um, let's just have a chair sitting in the corner with yeah. a single light on it. I've often been in situations where I've... I think I know um, somebody's been promised me a realistic thing. I mean, do we have that in our budget? Which is zero. Do we have that? And then a couple of weeks later, go, here's our realistic thing. That's not realistic at all. That's, yeah. that's genuinely embarrassing. Yeah. Let's just cut that scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, I think realism, realism is not as important as belief. Ah, oh, that's a good line. So there's that whole idea that I, I can tell you the thing, and it can be the suggestion of the elephant or the levitating virulin elephant. Um, yes. I don't think they're the same reference. No, no. I, I suspected that almost immediately. <laughs> um, okay, so um, you spoke about um, study in, in theatre and a museum. Mm. Um, so here's the unfair, cheap question. How did you get into this? Ah, I... I mean, I came from... Uh, I come from a family... Um, who used to go to theatre a lot. I mean, just locally, not big theatre. Um, but maybe once every couple of years, we'd come up to see a West End show. Um, but we'd see local theatre a lot. And, you know, the butcher um, dressing up in something or other to perform. Yeah. Um, then, uh, this is in Cornwall, I'm talking about. And then, um, as I got slightly older, well, into double figures, then maybe every few months we'd go and see something at, Plymouth Theatre Royal was obviously a big um, uh, professional um, thing. 
And I think, now this is embarrassing, but I think I got to the age of 16 um, and I saw, uh, and I, I had loved theatre for quite some time, um, to the extent that when I saw Barnum, I wanted to change my name to Phineas and join the circus. And I was nine, and so my mother was not impressed. Um, and wouldn't let me do either. Um, uh, I saw, I think I was 16, and I saw a production of Guys and Dolls. And it was the first time I thought, wow, somebody gets paid to create that. Yeah. Um, and it never crossed my mind before. So I was... I must have been before then, actually, because I, I went to art college um, and I, I always knew I wanted to do something with art that... I wanted it to be something clever with art, whatever that may be. And I, I don't mean that to be dismissive no. of um, any... Uh, uh, yeah, any, any form of design at all. But... Um, I sort of knew it would be a thing rather than I don't know what to do with my grades. I'll go to art school because I can draw. Yeah. And I very much sort of saw some kind of career ahead of me. And it was while I was there, I just thought, hang on a minute. People do get paid to create that. And that seems like bonkers fun to me. Um, and I think that the way that I... The way that I, that I think was much more suited. I studied uh, graphic design for two years and really was not very good at it at all. Um, you know, I'm going to go by because I can draw a bit, but it, it just, I didn't understand how to transfer a brief into, into something which would communicate to the, you know, the desired audience. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I thought, hang on a minute, I, should, I could do theatre design, just thought, yeah, 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 I'm this, this, this lands for me. So, um, yeah, so changed colleges, studied it for three years, and then uh, as soon as I left, um, which I think even at the time, I knew that I didn't know anything. I mean, it really was one of those that I thought, okay, well, I, I now know how little I know, so I will just sort of um, off to work for free and just do whatever the hell I can. I'll obviously be young and cocky and... Um, see what kind of rung I can get onto, and um, I actually, my dissertation was all basically just a giant ploy to interview a designer, so that uh, I could have an excuse to keep on writing to him every now and again. Just um, can we have another interview? Oh, here's the transcript of the interview. Um, remember me. Um, can we meet up? So I've finished my dissertation now. It'd be just really great to buy a drink and say thank you. Blah blah blah. And then uh, I yeah, went back to Cornwall and a couple of months later, he phoned me up and said, I've had an idea. Do you want to do some assisting work for me? I said, well, that is an idea. Isn't that How extraordinary. I mean, if we think for one moment that he didn't also know the ploy going on there. He says, he says that he didn't know the ploy. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, who, who knows really whether... Uh, yeah, whether that was all just uh, sort of a bluster. And I, but I worked with him for quite a brief amount of time, really. But it, it actually, it allowed me to, um, as I said a minute ago, sort of appreciate what little I knew and to actually know what I needed to teach myself pretty darn quick. So um, I worked for him for a couple of months. It was, I mean, we got on, thank goodness for that, because he had patience with me. But... Um, 
I couldn't do any of the things that people coming out of the London colleges can do. I couldn't um, model make, couldn't do technical drawing. Um, but through working for him and him telling me, no, that's not what I need it to be. Mentoring. He was mentoring. Yeah. Um, and as I say, it was probably only two to three months. Um, and then he just said, look, I can't be giving you any more work here. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I went away and uh, sort of taught myself, really. And then when he was in a desperate need for somebody, he phoned me up again and said, could you just basically draw a ground plan for me for the show that I've got? Um, and I need it for Monday. And um, I'll need it for Monday was a very common phrase that you'd hear. <laughs> uh, and I, I, yeah, I did that in, um, yeah, I did that in a, in a Sunday and an overnight and took it to him. And he just went, okay, great. And stayed working for him for quite a while after that. Um, And then obviously when you've got your foot in the door to that extent, I mean, I was an assistant for a good many years. Um, But it means that you are at least talking talking to directors, talking to assistant directors. You are in a lot of those meetings where the designer is with a director and you realise how different it is from being at college where the lecturer says to you, right, choose a play, design a scene from it. And then not really being able to tell you whether it's any good or not because they've not read that play. And obviously for all that college did give me, not trying to um, dismiss it, it's just it's a slight failing of uh, the system, if you like, if if you're going to put the brief in that way. It's artificial. It's very artificial, yeah, indeed. Because um, yeah. it occurs to me there's two really important things going on there in two vital things, uh, as well as having a, like a, a creation of portfolio and having those conversations. There's the, I need it by Monday, sort of thing. I've been able to respond to that. That seems to be like a, a, mm. a vital sort of thing that mm. we, could, we could all have as part of our toolkit of just... Try, try not to have um, instant panic face. Yeah. Even if obviously deep down yeah. you're just thinking, yeah, if you want to buy Monday, you should have phoned somebody else. Yeah, yeah. But you know that nobody else is available. That's why they've come to you. So just go, yeah. Be the person they can trust. And I can do that. Them. And the other thing that occurs to me that's least as important is that seems to be quite value, uh, a lot of value in being aware that you don't know everything. As long as you're not functionally an idiot... Yes, uh, and also being those meetings, it occurs to me that I think this you know, is true for directors, for a certain amount of actors and designers and whatever, or costume designers, is that whole idea of being curious, of going, I don't know about that, I, I need to know more. That seems to be quite a valuable thing. I think that's really important. Whenever I've spoken to students, uh, and obviously it's difficult telling students anything because at that age group, it it's difficult to be genuinely fascinated by things, but you can you can generally tell who is going to do really well um, because they are fascinated. Um, and it, it is it sounds really ridiculous to say that you 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 need to be fascinated by everything to a certain extent, um, and it is about um, the obvious things that obviously are going to further your career. But I think in theatre specifically, it's such a sort of broad range 
of references and understanding, hopefully, of, you know, the human nature that you just, yeah, you can't be closed off. I mean, I'm sure there are um, people who are very, very successful um, being so dogmatic to their own beliefs that they can just come up with extraordinary, um, extraordinary work. It's just, it's not the way I can function. And I think that 99% of people uh, are the same. And you, you, know, you get some extraordinary few who are able to just come up with brilliance with whatever. You, sorry, this depresses you, you are now at both the age and stage <laughs> of your career that That's you yourself right. could be a mentor. You've spoken about speaking to students, uh, whatever. And like many authors get asked, where do you get your ideas? I'm sure many students ask, where do you get your jobs? Yes. Uh, so, yes, there's an aspect that you might get rung up the first couple of times and go, oh, can you have that? And that, and that begins to perform a beginning of a portfolio. How then does one begin to make that work for themselves? Are you shopping around with a portfolio? Sure, sure, sure. Um, essentially, yes, completely. I mean, there's, I think there's a, there's a few ways of answering that. At the time, I was uh, sticking my hand up and saying, I, I, I should be designing, I want, to, um, I want to design for you, I can do this, um, I'm you know, the best person for this job, um, long before that was true. Um, I mean, well, we're talking years, and I would talk to sort of more, uh, sort of more experienced um, assistant associate designers, and just say, you know, when, when, when will you? When do you get the work? When will things start coming in? You know, I'd, um, and I was just constantly told, you'll be ready when you're told you're ready. Basically, it's not about you saying you're ready it's very will. a little bit yeah, I know it's quite irritating yeah. um, but I think for the most part the within that industry certainly um, uh, I think you've got to trust the market and I think that if you stick your hand up that metaphorically to say um, I should be designing this but it just it just doesn't read on your face or in your bones. It's not going to happen. Mm. It's just, I started saying yes to literally everything um, uh, as soon as I left college, I think. So whether it was um, something free, something that was uh, assisting, um, uh, charity gigs, it was just, at the time, it was because this is a very exciting, exciting industry to be in, yeah. and I just want to um, glean as much as I can. It wasn't any more calculated than that. But what it then became was, um, you, you know, meet up with somebody. And I, actually, I remember the, the first thing that I sort of properly designed, and it wasn't a very good experience at all, but um, I'd, I'd met through working with this designer I'd met um, a writer of Pantos and he also produces them and uh, he lives in Brighton and so you know we were chatting and he said you know we should you should just meet for coffee one Saturday um, and it was totally outside of work it was just sort of fun sunny Saturday blah 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 yeah. um, but you're talking about what you're doing and eventually he just said you know what you fancy you know um, giving a crack at doing bits and pieces um, and you just, yes, you, you 
instantly say yes. Yeah. Um, at the time, it didn't think that this was a stretch for me at all. Um, I think because pantomime is such a different beast to anything I come across. Actually, uh, it 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 wasn't a, a sort of happy marriage. I think it was all right. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a great thing for either of us. Um, but it was actually from that that I then met um, a director and, and more things sort of started to, to snowball from there. It, but it really was just a case of saying yes to everything. I wasn't that irritating guy sticking my hand up going, me please, me please, not mm. really, but I was just always sort of alert to anything. Um, I worked as a technician, uh, you know, like follow spot operator and you know, sweep the stage guy in Plymouth during holidays. Um, that And actually that came about because I was at work experience there and they were on the phone, two guys were on the phone um, saying, oh God, we need someone for tonight. I haven't got anybody. Where can we find somebody for tonight? And I just thought, I don't even know what they want tonight. <laughs> um, but you just sort of uh, do that thing of just slowly sidling up and going, anything I can do? It's back to that whole idea of going immediately by Monday, that sort of delivering yes. on the goods. Yes, indeed. And I think so long as you're honest with what you can do, um, you know, I never did that actory thing of saying I could, you know, ride a horse or anything. You know, honest about what you can do, um, then ultimately, if they think that you're not ready, then they won't offer it. Um, but to be honest, any advice that I would give to anyone younger, probably the advice that I was given um it, it's it takes a long time um not with everybody some people um some people do get into it very uh quickly and just have a complete instant aptitude for it and then you have the ability or you have the the bonus that a lot of people producers and directors are actually looking for somebody that they can discover if you like um so a lot of young people will get a break simply by being young, that's great. Um, I didn't get that sort of break, I was just sort of trusted with assisting and things like that, which is the normal way. Um, but it does, yeah, it does take quite a while. And I think, actually, I'm looking back at things that I've designed, I don't think it's normal to look back at any previous work with a huge amount of pride. Um, you know, there's there's an awful lot of pain that goes on internally when I when I look uh, or think of things I've done in the past but um, there was there was definitely a turning point where I felt that I was more equipped than I realised um, uh, and that was nice I thought okay no 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 I, now it is just about hawking my yeah. portfolio around and Oh gosh, I remember there was, I did so well for a period that I got, I remember I got two uh, musicals side by side and they were, um, for me, really, um, I mean, they weren't London or anything, but they were the high profile. One was a European premiere, um, another one was just a really good classic and you go, wow, I appear to have landed. This is great. And uh, I went on holiday for a week to New York and when I came back, there were two messages on the answer phone so before we had mobiles. And both had been cancelled. And I then had uh, I had six months, good six months, without any work whatsoever. So I 
eaten through all of my savings. Um, and uh, that was painful. And I was maybe a couple of weeks away from just saying, theatre hasn't worked, yeah. never mind. Um, I'd been offered... I'd been offered a job um, going around door to door, um, getting um, charitable donations. And then, thankfully, I was offered a job as an usher in the now departed Garden Art Centre, um, which I took instead of doing the charity thing, thankfully, was an usher, just because, you know, you need some money coming in. And then, out of nowhere, um, an associate job came in, which just changed everything and from that moment just go okay but in 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 that six months I was just constantly writing sending photos sending um cd-roms of pictures of my work and just getting letters back saying thanks but nothing and you go but that's okay I, I had this thing where all of my letters were in uh, bright green envelopes and they're all the same envelopes and paper chase so that if I write once every couple of months or something which I, I can appreciate now if I got written to every couple of months by somebody. <laughs> uh, that's not a good thing. But nevertheless, I did think, you know what, just, let's just keep reminding people that I'm around. Um, and I didn't get work from any of those people, but I did get some interviews. Um, so, it's, yeah, it just keep going and, yeah, just keep hawking. Um, and now, yeah, I've been fortunate that things have sort of, carried on their merry way just about um, but yeah it's freelance so it can yeah. stop at any moment that's, um, that's you know. definitely true but yes um, talk of pantomime musicals reminds me that um, those mediums tend to have or we perceive them to have a, like a visual medium that we, we know how they work and particularly pantomime in the sense uh, for it's, uh, the audience that it's, that it's fun and it's mm. easy mm. Um are there, as a designer, as a director, I think there are mistakes as a, as a, as a writer as well, that you know, there might be 58 scenes or different locations yes. and there doesn't need to be. Yeah. Uh, but are there assumptions that a designer or a, a trainee designer might make that you could tell us to avoid of going, oh, that's, don't, don't bother trying to do that, or you might think that pantomime or whatever is that sort of medium and it isn't yeah well yeah that's an interesting question I certainly I and I probably the director as well probably fell into a trap of trying to do um, a classy piece of Christmas entertainment um, I remember the, <laughs> I remember the first panto I designed probably the first full panto yeah uh I had this idea as a Cinderella and I had this idea that uh, Cinderella as a person, um, the, the metaphor that explains her is that um, she's um, a caged bird. You know, you're kept because of your beauty, but you're not allowed your freedom. This was, this was the grand idea. And so the whole stage was uh, like an ornate um, Victorian birdcage, um, which... I still love the idea. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't beautifully designed. It was okay, um, but I, I'm still sort of pretty proud of it. Yeah. Just not right for the audience. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Just how to totally misread what they've gone for, and going what the hell is that? 
Why? What? What's all that about? What's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. Not. Not. Uh, so I would say, yeah. Don't. Um, don't try and reinvent panto. Don't try and. Mm. Don't try and educate your audience into <laughs> uh, normal theatre um, sort of visual storytelling. Um, but in terms of any kind of of theatre, actually, um, if my experience of college is anything to go by, I would say, kick back on being told to design things that you are absolutely never going to be designing for a number of years. For example, there's no point making a stab at a big proscenium musical when you're at college. It's just not going to happen for a long time. Um, and all, all that it'll do is make you think that you can design these things. Um, so learn about... Learn about communicating with the audience. So design for studio theatres and the sort of places that you absolutely will be taking your portfolio around to as soon as you leave. Because, um, yeah, that, that storytelling, you can learn through your own sort of hypothetical practice, if you like. Um, but in terms of the the technicalities of these and the, the real sort of mechanics of how do you get, um, literally, how do you build scenery even, um, then how do you move it, store it, yeah. um, what sort of costs are involved with that. Um, it's entirely possible that um, colleges now do train you in all that, but I don't think that it's easy to learn that until you are just literally working on stages yeah. um, and seeing how these things happen and what the possibilities are yeah. um, and what the possibilities aren't because um, you can't reinvent science. Yeah. Presumably there's a, a lot of your designs made it to a final production um, but there may be some that the production ended up not happening after you made the designs. Uh, do those designs make up part of your portfolio or because they didn't you know, reach a, a final visual form, not so much? I think, I mean, I've got... I get asked to do concept sketches um, a fair bit and whilst I'm rubbish at updating my uh, website, I don't really have a portfolio anymore, it's, it's a website, but um, I, I am very bad at updating it, but I do have concept visuals um, in there of things that were just, um, you know, producers saying, we kind of want to do a production of this, but we just want it to feel a bit different. Do you want to sort of come up with some drawings? Um, uh, which is great fun to do, to be honest. And they have appeared. Um, but I, I wouldn't put in... I wouldn't put in... To be honest, I think, certainly in my experience and in my career, if a show or a way of putting on a production, if the organisation behind that production has been bad enough for it to collapse. Yeah. And it's not to say that it's all through negligence. I mean, obviously, there are a number of things. Um, but if that disorganisation is sort of going to be there, chances are it wasn't going to be good work from you yeah. anyway. Um, I mean, there's an awful lot of things. There's an awful lot of designs for... Uh, for shows that then a director or a producer has said no um, or love it 
but we can't afford it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of designs have gone by the wayside that way, um, but they haven't. They, no, they wouldn't work my way in. It's got to be, I think ultimately, if, it's the great thing about theatre, is that if you are able to design a couple of great scenes and the rest of it's rubbish, not that many people have seen it live. You can, <laughs> you can just photograph it and focus on the good bits. Uh, obviously, the more high profile you get, then that becomes more difficult. But yeah. um, certainly, there are things early on in my career that um, I remember just having a real stinker of a time just trying to get to grips with the fact that you know I just couldn't see a particular scene in the way the director did. And so you just end up with this, just just the visual that's just wrong. It just, you know, yeah. um, that's easy. Just don't take a photograph of it. You gave the impression that you're you'd always been drawing and doodling and stuff, mm. and, yeah. And you would have presumably had visual, not theatrical but necessarily, but visual mediums that you enjoyed as a youngster. Mm. It always surprised me from what I could see that the um over in Broadway, the um Spider Man musical mm. was not drenched in like a those primary colours, Steve Ditko sort of comic right. book colours. Right. Um, are there non-theatrical elements, artistic elements in your DNA that either do find their way into your theatrical work or have yet to find their way into your theatrical work that you'd like to go, oh, I'd like to do either a comic book or, or Rembrandt or, or a vivid, very different visual style? Oh, you know, gosh. Uh, n- uh, not that I can think of no. offhand, to be honest. I mean, there are certain, there are certain things that you, you find yourself drawn to, I think. And I do, I do get excited when there's an opportunity to do something in more of a deco style, in the same way, actually, that I do with, uh, sort of turn of the century. Yeah. Um, any, uh, yeah, those, uh, there are, I say this quite derogatorily, but the um, the sort of Athena styles, if you like, um, I yeah I enjoy exploring. Um, there are other designers who are able to more instinctively do the edgier eras, if you like. Um, uh, but those things that that I know as an audience member, I would um, I would enjoy. I yeah. I, I like. Um, <coughs> But no, do you know what? It's, it's interesting you're saying about about um, uh, about Spider-Man because uh, these cartoon things, there, there tends to be a lot of that and there's a lot of talk of that sort of yeah. thing. Um, I was never a, um, a comic or an adult comic guy. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't know. I'm sure there'll be something that comes up now that yeah. you know, does make me hanker after it. But Fantastic. Um, where we are gearing towards the end now, Coming up for you, what are you designing? What What's the next couple of projects that are coming up? I've got, uh, well, I'm currently working on um, an immersive, uh, a, a, an immersive telling, if you like, of the gunpowder plot. Yeah. Um, which will, it'll, it puts you into 1605 and it, makes you as an audience member um someone who is loyal to the king and has to infiltrate 
the uh, the plotters uh, to gain their trust, so that you can um, essentially inform on them on them. But then you you get this quite the gameplay of these things is quite nice because you then get to supposedly get swung into their uh, to being you know empathetic to their cause. So you then have this sort of big moral decision: do you uh, dob them in essentially? Um, and get them killed by the state, or do you support their cause and go through? Um, that's fun. That's happening in um, a lot of um, converted vaults. There's um, talk of more secret cinema, which by its own definition I can't talk about. And there's, bizarrely, there is um, something based on a board game, which I equally can't talk about but we've come a long way from Pinter now Andrew have. This is, uh, it's a different line altogether yes with the um, gunpowder um, plot um, it occurs to me that there's the thing that occurs to me directly particularly in the vaults is that light's going to be a big medium in that or lack of light is going to be yeah. a medium and so th- that means, does that mean a more tight, is that a, a, a more involved conversation with the lighting designer than you might normally have? Yes, I think actually in immersive it is more involved. Um, with the exception of Stranger Things, which I've just, just done, uh, with it being 1985, there's not a lot of argument as to fixtures and fittings being... Uh, you know, horrendous. Sometimes he wants to put theatrical lights in places. Yeah. He wants to say, no, 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 we'll not have that. We'll light it totally naturally. Yeah. But you're right, gunpowder plot, it's got to be flame. And I, to be honest, I, we're, we're early days, so I don't know how we get around that. Um, fire has to be a major part of it, and yet we are close up to the audience. So the idea of carrying flaming torches or there being braziers or whatever... Uh, there are certain tricks that you can play, but can you sustain an an audience's entire evening lying to them yeah. um, and them knowing that, A, this is not real flame, or B, it's behind a sheet of glass, or, you know, or whatever. Um, it feels that at some point we've got to find some very clever ways yeah. of lighting some scenes that aren't um, a major health and safety problem. I was directing um, the Mysteries once in a church in just outside York, I think, nice. uh, years ago, and it was in a vast old church, and about an hour or so before we went up, um, somebody came up to me and went, oh, it's dreadful news, the, the power's gone. Uh, <laughs> we've got no light, we're going to have to do it all by um, candlelight. Awesome. And I was like, oh, that's glorious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they came up to me half an hour and I go, good news, we've fixed the lights. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm so happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, At least in a church you can do that. Yeah. You don't have people running around saying, put out the flame. No. Uh, but it's, yeah, I'll be honest with you, you you've hit on absolutely the uh, the problem that I'm trying to deal with every day. And I haven't had a conversation with the lighting designer yet. Um logically that would be the first thing to do but as I'm trying to sort of find some kind of language through this 
through this experience. And you think, oh, okay, one of the great sort of themes, if you like, is fire. And so how many different things relate to this thing that is fire? How can we reference this in a number of different ways? How can we tell the story with um, you know, interesting uses of, of fire and things? Whilst all also thinking, yeah, we can't actually have fire. No. That's um, uh, so it, it, what might be. I say it's very early days. Only day three of the job for me. So it might be that, however, we solve the problem of fire, creates the unique experience yeah. that we're doing. That if you were outside, you would just use fire, and it would be a very different thing. Um, okay, solving the problem. Load. I get yeah. a kick out those sort of I know, the problems are going. You can't have that thing. Okay, then how do we solve it then? Yeah, so that, I find that quite or make exciting. that our virtue. Make that our, our yeah. Run towards the problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I will go for the emergency questions to steal the phrase from another podcast. Um, what are you watching, listening, or reading at the moment that we should all watch, listen uh, to, or read? Okay, uh, watching. Uh, watching Jack Ryan, looking forward to series three of uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> horrendous plug to the, um, uh, uh, to the bad man Bezos, but nevertheless. Um, uh, listening to... Uh, uh, last thing to listen to, actually, with uh, great relish, was the um, uh, Springsteen on Broadway. Oh, yes. It's just very lovely. And reading literally between books because on Thursday I finished a book which I utterly adored um, called uh, Gentleman in Roscoe, uh, Moscow, Roscoe, um, in, in a tub of paint, in fact. Uh, Gentleman in Moscow yeah. by uh, yeah, an American guy called um, Amore Towels, which I adored. Yeah. Um, but I don't know anybody else who knows it, so it might be just that it chimed with me. You never really know, do you, with books? So you, you, you said you're in between books. Do you know what you're about to read next? Uh, no, I've sort of got Stephen Fry's Mythos on the go, yeah. but it's um, hardback, so it's not a traveller. Yeah. So I'll, yeah, I'll have to find something for, yeah, for when I'm next. When you're working, or when you are sort of designing or scrawling or musing, um, where do you do that best? We normally ask uh, people, you know, is there a coffee shop in Brighton that you tend to hang out in? And I know that you sort of, you work so a lot in the city as well, in London as well, that that may not actually be a practical thing. And recently so many other people have answered, actually, I work better at home. I don't go out. I'm yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, is there a place that you sort of, you know, like the, the, the lobby of the National Theatre or whatever, is there a place that you sort of, our home uh, that's that's a really good point actually i mean i do i'm lucky that i've got a room in my house that is devoted to work um until about seven forty-five um when uh football comes on but essentially it's devoted to work during daytime and um but it hasn't always been like that and i absolutely did uh do the cafe thing um now uh, my favourite places are, uh, okay, picking up Twin Pines down in uh, St. James Street. Um, I do like the, um, uh, my two favourite places in London uh, for doing this sort of thing, the um, South Bank Centre and uh, the British Library is just a fabulous place to hang out and there's absolutely no problem with people getting laptops out. Yeah. It's just buzzing. Um, whilst obviously being deadly quiet. 
Yes. Which is useful. I think that, I, I think with Joanne Harris, I can't remember if it was, on Twitter, was saying her 10 top places to write in London. And one of them was the British Museum. Ah, oh, right. It, you sort of follow it, you go, well, that's delightful to know. But also, you're thinking, keep quiet. <laughs> yes. It's not about the museum, but thinking, F boys, they'll all want one. You know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. There'll be a en masse of people. Yeah. Was there ever, this links back somewhat to a question I asked earlier about, you know, would you have liked to have designed the original 1950 production of this play or whatever? But is there a book or a concept or an invention? that you actually had the idea for and then didn't vocalise it, didn't do anything with it, and then somebody else has got there first oh. and made a career. I mean, did you, did you invent the iPhone? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, that, oh, gosh. Um, yes. In terms of thinking to myself, wow, I'd love to put that film somehow on stage... But never, I mean, you know, I just, I don't have the, uh, I don't have the influence um, to do that. And obviously you think of um, films, yeah, the whole heap of problems with rights and all sorts of things. So you just go, ah, well, we'll put that to one side. And if I get an inkling that it's coming up, then I'll just stick my head out of the parapet and say, I adore that film. I'm the right man for this. Um, When Hudsucker Proxy was done, I was gutted. I adore that film. And I couldn't bring myself to go and see it because I just thought you couldn't possibly do this well. Apparently it did, was done very well. <laughs> I was, um, yeah, gutted to read, but delighted that obviously that it potentially could have another life in the adaptation that it's had. Um, I would love to, if anyone influential is out there, I would love to find a way of doing a really small, delicate production of Il Pastino the uh, Italian film because I adore that everyone says um, life is beautiful which is amazing as well and I adore life is beautiful um, but or actually I'm not even talking about I'm talking about Cinema Paradiso they always say I was Cinema, say Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso yes. I mean life is beautiful yes but I, I wouldn't like to see that on stage to be honest um, but Cinema Paradiso I think is the one that people say yeah let's let's sort of do that and it will happen and I've done um, sort of concepts for it and things I never really pursued it. Um, but I would like to, and I, I should. But I think, actually, I, I'd be mortified if someone did Il Postino and it wasn't with me. Yeah. Um, but then equally, I would have to work with a director who might see it in a totally different way. So, That's true. poison chalices and all. So, uh, so both the sound of a poison chalice and a gauntlet being thrown down. Uh, <laughs> Tim McGovern Wright, thank you very much. Awesome, thank you. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. Produced by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Armand. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our website is castironbrighton.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.